we continue our sermon series on the book of Jonah. If you would turn to Jonah chapter three, if you don't have a Bible with you, the scripture is printed in your sermon guide so that you can follow along. Jonah chapter three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he proclaimed a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Each week we have looked at a component that is critical to finding your place in God's mission. God has a heart for the nations. He is on mission to reach the nations. The question is, how do you join in? How do you find your place in that mission? If mission is like a flowing river, how do you get in? We've looked at several components that are critical to this. In chapter one, it was responding to God's pursuit. In chapter two, it was understanding grace. And now in chapter three, it's extending mercy. But why is extending mercy so critical to finding your place in God's mission? To answer this, we're gonna ask three questions. Number one, what produces evil? Number two, how does mercy defeat evil? And then three, why does mercy defeat 
evil. First, what produces evil? Now, you may ask the question, why are we talking about evil? It's actually a theme that is very prevalent in the book of Jonah. It starts in the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 2. For Nineveh's evil has come up before me. And then in chapter 1, verse 7, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The evil of Nineveh is front and center in this passage. It was a very violent culture. It was known for its brutality, the way that it raped and tortured the the nations around it, including Israel. It was the emerging world power of the day. And yet what we find in these ancient cultures like Nineveh is that it wasn't uncommon for them to be violent and evil. In fact, most of them were, like Rome. And you say, why? Well, they were all polytheistic cultures. And by that, I mean that they believed in many gods and that the gods uh, warred and fought with each other for power. In these cultures, violence uh, was normal. Uh, Justice and peace were completely unnatural. This is in, in stark contrast to the Christian worldview where we believe there is one God, one supreme lawgiver, and therefore the world was originally a a peaceful place. So polytheistic cultures are violent at the core and they produce acts of evil. You say, great, that's awfully philosophical. Can't get my hands around that. Well, think about our world today. We live in what we would call a relativistic culture that is all about preaching tolerance. Don't impress your views upon anyone. Truth is not absolute. Truth is what uh, you make it to be. This is what we call pluralism, that there are many ways to God, that there are many truths. It's a little different than polytheism, but at the core, It has the same foundation, which is there is no overarching truth in our world that doesn't change. And it's interesting, in this worldview, oftentimes tolerance is is taught or spoken of as a means to producing peace. That if, if we were a little more tolerant, that the world would be a more peaceful place. And I would argue it's, it's just the opposite. If there is no overarching truth, if truth is what everyone makes it to be for themselves, then you have a recipe for a world where everyone is living for themselves, where everyone is living for their own made-up version of what is right and wrong, and that such a world does not produce peace or such a view does not produce peace, but it produces violence and selfishness and wickedness. 
Let me give you some simple evidence of this. Take three two-year-olds and throw them into a room with a bunch of toys and watch the violence that ensues. One child's worldview that says that his happiness is paramount and above all else allows him to sink his teeth into another child to get what he wants and feel no remorse over it. Tolerance, which is the motto of pluralism and somewhat of the motto of our day is not the answer. It doesn't produce peace. It produces evil, violence, and selfishness. Now, some of you and, and maybe the proponents of pluralism would say, well, okay, great, but what about religion? Look at what religion has produced over the centuries, the violence and the wickedness. Just look at the history books. And you say, actually, yes, it has. And that brings us to our second and surprising source of violence. Jonah preaches to Nineveh. Nineveh repents. God relents of punishing them. And then we read of Jonah's shocking and perplexing response in chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. This actually reads a lot stronger than it appears. The word displeased means evil. So it could read, verse one could read something like this, but to Jonah, this seemed very evil, and he became evil. When he saw God refuse to be violent with the violent, when he saw God refuse to return evil for evil, Jonah himself became evil. Jonah himself was filled with violence. He was mad. He was angry because he didn't see violence. How could God not punish this city for what they had done to his people? And so he says, essentially, a little bit of a paraphrase in chapter four, verse three, he says, kill me because I can't live in a world with a merciful God like you. Think about it. Who killed Jesus? It was the moral teachers of the law. It was the Pharisees. Jonah is, a, in many ways, a forerunner to the Pharisees. Who got angry at Jesus' mercy shown to the tax collectors and the prostitutes of the day? It was the Pharisees. What we learn from this is that morality, if not put in the context of God's mercy, becomes a seed for oppression, a seed for violence a seed for anger, a seed for evil. Look at the bombing of abortion clinics done in the name of religion and morality. Look at the bombing of the World Trade Centers done in the name of religion and morality. Both pluralism and moralism produce evil. 
This brings us to our second question. So how does mercy defeat evil? Now, before we get to mercy, I want to explore the, the various strategies that are employed against violence and evil in the book of Jonah. There are two strategies. The first is vengeance. And we see vengeance employed by the sailors, by the Ninevites, and by Jonah. Start with the sailors, chapter one, verse six. So the captain came and said to Jonah, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They believed that the gods operated with vengeance. It was evil for evil. And so God was sending this storm to punish evil. The Ninevites in chapter 3 had the same worldview. Perhaps, maybe God will relent. But we understand the gods to be vengeful. And we understand the world to operate that way. And then you get to Jonah. And you see Jonah operating with vengeance. He wanted the Ninevites to pay for their violence against Israel. That's why he was angry. God didn't make them pay. God didn't act out of vengeance. So that's the first strategy we see employed against violence and evil in the book of Jonah. The second strategy is resignation. We see this in chapter four, verse five. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Interesting, he, he doesn't get the vengeance he wanted. God wouldn't wipe out Nineveh. So what does Jonah do? He removes himself from the city, removes himself from the wrongdoer, finds a hill, sits on it, and then secretly in his mind continues to wish and hope for the vengeance to be poured out on Nineveh. You see, that's resignation. Resignation is removing yourself from the situation, removing yourself from the wrongdoer, getting on with your life, but then secretly in your mind wishing the vengeance upon them. You know how that works. Somebody wrongs you and, and, and you remove yourself from the situation, but then in your mind you have thoughts, uh, uh, you get great joy thinking about that person failing or you get great joy thinking about that person uh, being hurt. See, vengeance and resignation don't defeat evil. They actually multiply it because both arise out of your own hurt and both are attempts to deal with your own hurt. Both exclude the wrongdoer. God calls for neither vengeance nor resignation. He calls for mercy 
which is the foundation of forgiveness. Verse nine, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. The Ninevites deserve to be punished for their wicked and evil ways, and yet God relented. Forgiveness is dealing with your hurt and anger before you deal with the wrongdoer. Forgiveness is extending mercy in your heart to the wrongdoer before you confront or deal with the wrongdoer. If you don't, if you don't extend mercy and forgive the person before you confront them, then you will hurt them to deal with your own anger. Vengeance is dealing with your hurt and anger as you deal with the wrongdoer. Resignation is not dealing with the wrongdoer. Vengeance multiplies the evil. Resignation ignores the evil. Mercy defeats evil because mercy absorbs evil. Let me give you an example of this. My two-year-old son is in a season of biting right now. And when he sinks his teeth into me in a way that it really, really hurts, I have to forgive him. I have to extend mercy in my heart towards him before I take him back to the room to discipline him. Because if I don't, then I will discipline him out of anger. Disciplining out of anger is vengeance. Forgiveness is extending mercy in your heart to the wrongdoer before you deal with the wrongdoer. So with my son, I have to extend mercy to him. If I discipline my son after I have forgiven him, then I discipline him for his good. If I discipline my son without first forgiving him, then I discipline him for my good, to deal with my hurt, to deal with my anger, forgiveness is about absorbing the wrong, absorbing the hurt. We take my son to my gym once a week, and he loves it. It's a place where he can get a ton of energy out. And there are two things he loves to do at my gym. Number one, jump on the trampoline. Number two, jump into the bin of colored plastic balls. When he jumps off the ledge onto the trampoline, he rebounds up into the air. When he jumps off the ledge into the bin of plastic colored balls, he disappears. He's absorbed by them. Vengeance is the trampoline. 
mercy and forgiveness is the bin of plastic colored balls. Which of those characterizes your marriage? Which of those characterizes your relationship with your kids? Which of those characterizes your relationship with your friends? Trampoline or container of plastic balls? Vengeance or mercy and forgiveness? Do you absorb the wrong? Do you absorb the hurt? Mercy defeats evil. But why? Why does mercy defeat evil? Verse nine raises two important questions. Verse nine, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. Two critical questions that you have to answer coming out of this verse. Number one, why did God turn from his anger? He didn't have to. If God were only seeking justice, he wouldn't have relented. Uh, he sought justice with Sodom and Gomorrah and wiped Sodom and Gomorrah out. He could have satisfied justice by wiping Nineveh out. He could have satisfied justice by wiping Jonah out. But he didn't. Why? The clue is in verse three of chapter three. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. You say, what? A great city? The same city that we learn of in chapter one, verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for the evil, their evil has come up against me? That great city that is full of evil? You say, well, then great just means the size of it. No, no, the Hebrew word exceedingly in verse three is Elohim, which means God. And so that verse really reads, now Nineveh was a great city to God. God loved Nineveh. God loves this world. No, he doesn't love evil. No, he doesn't love sin. No, he doesn't love violence. But he loves this world that he made. And that's why he relented from punishing Nineveh because he loved Nineveh. You see, if God sought justice without love, he would have wiped out Nineveh. If God sought or satisfied justice without love, you and I wouldn't be sitting here today. God would have destroyed us a long time ago. Consider your marriage. If you seek justice in your marriage apart from love, you will destroy your marriage. Or to say it another way, you can be right and ruin your marriage. Mercy defeats evil because at the heart of mercy is love. Now to the second question that comes out of verse nine. Where did that righteous anger go? 
says God relented, that he turned from it. Where did it go? Notice it didn't disappear. It says God turned from it. In other words, he chose not to act upon it. He put it aside. This isn't the only time that we, we see this wording describing God relenting. In fact, in Exodus 32, after the Israelites have built the golden calf at Mount Sinai, we read in verse 14 of Exodus 32, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Note the exact same language to describe God's mercy to Israel that's used to describe God's mercy to Nineveh. God doesn't play favorites when it comes to sin. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God turning from this righteous anger and and over and over he turns from his righteous anger and you say, well, where does it go? Romans 3.25 says, in his divine forbearance, God had passed over former sins. Where did it go? Well, let me read the context of Romans 3.25. In fact, verses 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The word propitiation means a wrath-removing sacrifice. All the righteous anger that God had turned from over the centuries, all of this righteous anger that he had turned from that had built up was poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross. And Jesus absorbed it. At the cross, the mercy and justice of God are satisfied. On May 11, 2002, a 24-year-old drunk driver named Eric killed two 20-year-old women, Megan and Lisa, in an awful accident. Megan's mother and Lisa's family chose to forgive Eric. In fact, they, they tried to get his 22-year prison sentence reduced to 11 years. A couple years after the tragedy, Renee began to go around and speak to groups about the dangers of drunk driving. But even more than that, the power of forgiveness. You see, she had chosen to extend mercy to this man who had killed the daughter that she loved. And through this process of extending mercy, Eric came to know Jesus Christ. And he began to join her at these speaking engagements as an inmate and as a living example of the power of forgiveness and the power of extending mercy. You and I hear a story like that and and you may think, I could never do that. I would be so full of anger towards this this man who, who took my child that I loved, 
I'd be more like Jonah, full of anger and wanting vengeance. And if I couldn't get that, just resignation, full of bitterness. What we see here is that forgiveness is unnatural and therefore supernatural. So you say, how do you forgive then? How do you extend mercy if it's unnatural? You look to Jesus until he melts your anger and hurt away. You look to Jesus until he melts your anger. Jonah looks at the city of Nineveh, the city that had inflicted so much pain on his people and wanted it killed. In Luke 19, Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem that is going to kill him. What a stark contrast. What we learn is this. If you stare at the wrong someone has done to you, you will be filled with anger. But if you stare at Jesus, you will find the power to absorb the wrong and you will watch your anger melt away. Forgiveness is supernatural. It's a work of Jesus. We see it even in this story of Jonah. By the end of chapter two, Jonah has his eyes on a merciful and gracious God, which moves him in obedience to go to Nineveh and preach the worst sermon probably recorded in history. Eight-word sermon, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And a city of 120,000 people repent. And yet by the beginning of chapter four, Jonah, Jonah's eyes have moved from this merciful and gracious God back to the city of Nineveh that has inflicted so much pain on him and his people, and he's filled with anger. You stare at the wrong someone has done to you, and you will be filled with anger. You stare at Jesus, and he will melt your anger and give you a supernatural love for your enemy, power to forgive your enemy, and it's there, extending mercy, that you will find your place in God's mission. Let's pray. Father, Forgiveness is hard. Every one of us is guilty of acting in vengeance and resignation. Every one of us is guilty of staring at the wrong that has been done to us, the evil committed against us, and being filled with anger and bitterness and a desire for vengeance. And, oh, Father, would you soften our hearts? Would you shift our eyes from the wrong that's been done to us to your son, Jesus, who absorbed our sin, who absorbed our evil, who extended mercy. And as we stare at Jesus, Father, would you melt our anger away? And would you give us the power to forgive? And there are relationships in this room and in this sphere that need to be reconciled and restored. And I pray you would give 
these people the power, the power to extend mercy, to grant forgiveness for the sake of Jesus, Jesus and for the sake of his mission. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.